0: And it can scarcely be believed that that clear view of the justice of God and their condemnation, which most persons sensibly experience, is the fruit of a mere legal conviction on an unregenerate heart. For this view of God's justice is not merely of the fact that this is his character, but of the divine excellency of his attributes, which is accompanied with admiration of it, and a feeling of acquiescence or submission. This view is sometimes so clear, and the equity and propriety of punishing sin are so manifest, and the feeling of acquiescence so strong, that it has laid the foundation for the very absurd opinion that the true penitent is made willing to be damned for the glory of God. When such a conviction as this is experienced, the soul is commonly nigh to comfort, although at the moment it is common to entertain the opinion that there is no salvation for it. It is wonderful and almost unaccountable how calm the soul is in the prospect of being forever lost. An old lady of the Baptist denomination was the first person I ever heard give an account of Christian experience, and I recollect that she said that she was so deeply convinced that she should be lost that she began to think how she would feel and be exercised in hell. And it occurred to her that all in that horrid place were employed in blasphemy in the name of God. The thought of doing so was rejected with abhorrence, and she felt as if she must and would love him, even there, for his goodness to her, for she saw that she alone was to blame for her destruction, and that he could, in consistence with his character, do nothing else but inflict this punishment on her. Now surely her heart was already changed, although not a ray of comfort had dawned upon her mind. But is there not before this? Generally, a rebellious rising against God and a disposition to find fault with His dealings, it may be so in many cases, but this feeling is far from being as universal as some suppose. As far as the testimony of pious people can be depended on, there are many whose first convictions are of the evil of sin, rather than of its danger, and who feel real compunction of spirit for having committed it accompanied with a lively sense of their ingratitude. This question, however, is not of any great practical importance, but there are some truly pious persons who are distressed and perplexed because they never experience that kind of conviction which they hear others speak of, and the necessity of which is insisted on by some preachers. Certainly that which the reprobate may experience, which is not different from what all the guilty will feel at the day of judgment, cannot be a necessary part of true religion, and yet it does appear to be a common thing for awakened persons to be at first under a mere legal conviction. Though man in his natural state is spiritually dead, that is, entirely destitute of any spark of true holiness, yet is he still a reasonable being, and has a conscience by which he is capable of discerning the difference between good and evil, and of feeling the force of moral obligation. By having his sins brought clearly before his mind and his conscience awakened from its stupor, he can be made to feel what his true condition is as a transgressor of the holy law of God. This sight and sense of sin, under the influence of the common operations of the Spirit of God, is what is usually styled conviction of sin. There can be no doubt that these views and feelings may be very clear and strong in an unrenewed mind. Indeed, they do not differ in kind from what every sinner will experience at the day of judgment, when his own conscience will condemn him, and he will stand guilty before his judge. But there is nothing in this kind of conviction which has any tendency to change the heart or make it better. Some indeed have maintained, with some show of reason, that under mere legal conviction a sinner grows worse and worse and certainly he sees his sins to be greater in proportion as the light of truth increases. There is not, therefore, in such convictions, however clear and strong, any approximation to regeneration. It cannot be called a preparatory work to this change in the sense of disposing the person to receive the grace of God. The only end which it can answer is to show the rational creature his true condition, and to convince a sinner of his absolute need of a Saviour. Under conviction there is frequently a more sensible rising of the enmity of the heart against God and His law, but feelings of this kind do not belong to the essence of conviction. There is also sometimes an awful apprehension of danger. The imagination is filled with strong images of terror, and hell seems almost uncovered to the view of the convinced sinner. But there may be much of this feeling of terror where there is very little real conviction of sin. On the other hand, there is often deep and permanent conviction where the passions and imagination are very little excited. When the entrance of light is gradual, the first effect of an awakened conscience is to attempt to rectify what now appears to have been wrong in the conduct. It is very common for the conscience at first to be affected with outward acts of transgression, and especially with some one prominent offense. An external reformation is now begun, for this can be effected by mere legal conviction. To this is added an attention to the external duties of religion, such as prayer, reading the Bible, hearing the Word, and so on. Everything, however, is done with the legal spirit, that is, with the wish and expectation of making amends for past offenses. And if painful penances should be prescribed to the sinner, he will readily submit to them if he may, by this means, make some atonement for his sins. But as the light increases he begins to see that his heart is wicked, and to be convinced that his very prayers are polluted for want of right motives and affections. He of course tries to regulate his thoughts and to exercise right affections, but here his efforts prove fruitless. It is much easier to reform the life than to bring the corrupt heart into a right state. The case now begins to appear desperate. The sinner knows not which way to turn for relief, and to cap the climax of his distress he comes at length to be conscious of nothing but unyielding hardness of heart. He fears that the conviction which he seemed to have is gone, and that he is left to total obduracy. In these circumstances he desires to feel keen compunction and overwhelming terror, for his impression is that he is entirely without conviction. The truth is, however, that his convictions are far greater than if he experienced that sensible distress which he so much courts. In this case he would not think his heart so incurably bad, because it could entertain some right feeling, but as it is he sees it to be destitute of every good emotion and of all tender relentance. He has got down to the core of iniquity, and finds within his breast a heart unsusceptible of any good thing. Does he hear that others have obtained relief by hearing such a preacher, reading such a book, conversing with some experienced Christian? He resorts to the same means, but entirely without effect. The heart seems to become more insensible in proportion to the excellence of the means enjoyed. Though he declares he has no sensibility of any kind, yet his anxiety increases, and perhaps he determines to give himself up solely to prayer and reading the Bible, and if he perish to perish seeking for mercy. But however strong such resolutions may be, they are found to be in vain, for now when he attempts to pray he finds his mouth, as it were, shut. He cannot pray, he cannot read, he cannot meditate. What can he do? nothing. He has come to the end of his legal efforts, and the result has been the simple, deep conviction that he can do nothing, and if God does not mercifully interpose, he must inevitably perish. During all this process he has had some idea of his need of divine help, but until now he was not entirely cut off from all dependence on his own strength and exertions. He still hoped that, by some kind of effort or feeling, he could prepare himself for the mercy of God. Now he despairs of this, and not only so, but for a season he despairs it may be of salvation, gives himself up for lost. I do not say that this is a necessary feeling by any means, but I know that it is a very natural and by no means uncommon in real experience. But conviction, having accomplished all that it is capable of effecting, that is, having emptied the creature of self-dependence and self-righteousness, and brought him to the utmost extremity, even to the borders of despair, it is time for God to work. The proverb says, man's extremity is God's opportunity. So it is in this case. And at this time, it may reasonably be supposed, the work of regeneration is wrought for a new state of feeling is now experienced. Upon calm reflection God appears to have been just and good in all his dispensations. The blame of its perdition the soul fully takes upon itself, acknowledges its ill desert, and acquits God. Against thee is thee only have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. The sinner resigns himself into the hands of God, and yet it is convinced that if he does perish, he will suffer only what his sins deserved. He does not fully discover the glorious plan according to which God can be just and the justifier of the ungodly who believe in Jesus Christ. The above is not given as a course of experience which all real Christians can recognize as their own, but as a train of exercises which is very common. And as I do not consider legal conviction as necessary to precede regeneration, but suppose there are cases in which the first serious impressions may be the effect of regeneration, I cannot, of course, consider any particular train of exercises under the law as essential. It has been admitted, however, that legal conviction does in fact take place in most instances prior to regeneration. And it is not an unreasonable inquiry, why is the sinner thus awakened? What good purpose does it answer? The reply has been already partially given, but it may be remarked that God deals with man as an accountable moral agent, and before He rescues him from the ruin into which he is sunk, He would let him see and feel in some measure how wretched his condition is, how helpless he is in himself and how ineffectual are his most strenuous efforts to deliver himself from his sin and misery. He is therefore permitted to try his own wisdom and strength. And finally, God designs to lead him to the full acknowledgement of his own guilt, and to justify the righteous judge who condemns him to everlasting torment. Conviction, then, is no part of a sinner's salvation, but the clear, practical knowledge of the fact that he cannot save himself and is entirely dependent on the saving grace of God. THE NEW BIRTH AN EVENT OF GREAT IMPORTANCE CHAPTER Three. THE EVIDENCES OF THE NEW BIRTH DIVERSITIES OF EXPERIENCING CONVERTS There is no more important event which occurs in our world than the new birth of an immortal soul. Heirs to titles and estates, to kingdoms and empires are frequently born. And such events are blazoned with imposing pomp, and celebrated by poets and orators. But what are all these honors and possessions but the gu of children when compared with the inheritance and glory to which every child of God is born and heir? But this being a birth from above, and all the blessings and privileges of the young heir, of a hidden and spiritual nature, the world around cannot be expected to take a lively interest in the event. It is with the children of God as with the divine Saviour. The world knoweth them not as it knew him not. The night on which he was born there was a great crowd of the descendants of David collected from every part of the Holy Land where they were scattered abroad. But none of all these knew that a Saviour was born that night. Yet the angel celebrated the event in a truly celestial hymn and announced the glad tidings to a company of simple shepherds who were watching their flocks in the open field. So these celestial inhabitants, the messengers of God, take a lively interest still in events in which a gay and ungodly world feel no concern. For there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. How they know certainly when a soul is born to God we need not inquire for they have faculties and sources of knowledge unknown to us. We know that they are all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation, but how they carry on their ministry we cannot tell. If the evil spirit can inject evil thoughts into our minds, why may not good spirits suggest pious thoughts, or occasionally make sudden impression for our warning or change, by some means a train of our thoughts, no doubt the devil soon learns a fact, when a sinner is converted into God, for he has then lost a subject, and perhaps no conversion ever takes place which he does not use every effort to prevent. But to return to our subject, the implantation of spiritual life in a soul dead in sin is an event the consequences of which will never end. When you plant an acorn and it grows, you do not expect to see the maturity much less the end of the majestic oak, which will expand its bows and strike deeply into the earth its roots. The fierce blasts of centuries of winters may beat upon it and agitate it, but it resists them all. Yet finally this majestic oak and all its towering branches must fall. Trees die of old age as well as men, but the plants of grace shall ever live. They shall flourish in everlasting verdure they will bear transplanting to another clime, to another world. They shall bloom and bear fruit in the paradise of God. At such an hour one is born in Zion unto God, few know it. Few care for the event, or consider it of much importance. But reader, this feeble germ, this incipient bud, will go on to grow and flourish for infinitely more years than there are sands upon the seashore. To drop the figure, this renewed soul will be seen and known among the saints in heaven, and assisting in the never-ceasing songs of those surrounding the throne of God and the Lamb, millions of ages hereafter. Pure and holy shall it be, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Bride is an angel, and is free from moral taint, but still distinguished from those happy beings to whom it is equal by singing a song in which they can never join, and wearing robes made white in the blood of the Lamb, and claiming a nearer kindred to the Son of God than Gabriel himself, can that event be of a small moment which lays a foundation for immortal bliss, for eternal life? Let us then, patiently and impartially, inquire into some of the circumstances and evidences of the new birth. And here I cannot but remark, that among all the preposterous notions which a new and crude theology has poured forth so profusely in our day, there is none more absurd than that a dead sinner can beget new life in himself. The very idea of a man's becoming his own father in the spiritual regeneration is as unreasonable as such a supposition in relation to our first birth, away with all such soul-destroying, God-dishonoring sentiments which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God, born of the Spirit. And you hath He quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. But who can trace the work of the Spirit in this wonderful renovation? Can we tell how our bones and sinews were formed in our mother's wombs? Surely, then, there must be mystery in the second birth. As our Lord said to Nicodemus, when discoursing on this very subject, If I have told you earthly things, and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? The wind bloweth where it listeth; and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh, and whither it goeth. There are, doubtless, great diversities in the appearances of the motions and actings of spiritual life in its incipient stages. The agent is the same, the deadness of the subject the same, the instrument the same, and the nature of the effect the same in every case. But still there are many differing circumstances which cause a great variety in appearance and expression, such as the degree of vigor in the principle of life communicated, I know, indeed, that there are some who entertain the opinion that the new creature as it comes from the hand of God, if I may so speak, is in all respects identical or of equal value. But this is not the fact. There is as much difference in the original vigour of spiritual as of natural life. Now who does not perceive what a remarkable difference this will make in all the actings and external exhibitions of this principle? As in nature some children, as soon as born, are active and vigorous and healthy, and let all around know quickly that they are alive and have strong feeling too, whereas others come into the world with so feeble a spark of life that it can hardly be discerned whether they breathe or have any pulsation in their heart and arteries, and when it is ascertained that they live, the principle of vitality is so weak and surrounded with so many untoward circumstances and symptoms that there is a small prospect of the infant reaching maturity, just so it is in the new birth. Some are brought at once into the clear light of day. They come out of darkness into the marvelous light of the gospel. Old things are consequently passed away, and all things are become new. The change is most obvious and remarkable. They are as if introduced into a new world. The Son of Righteousness has risen upon them with an intervening cloud. Their perception of divine things is so new and so clear that they feel persuaded that they can convince others, and cause them to see and feel as they do. Indeed, they wonder why they did not always see things in this light, they do not know why others do not see them as they do. Such persons can no more doubt of their conversion than of their existence. Such a case was that of Saul of Tarsus. Such also was the case of Colonel James Gardiner. Now this bright day may be clouded over, or it may not. In the case of the two persons mentioned, there does not seem ever to have arisen a passing cloud to create a doubt whether indeed they had been brought to enjoy the light of a heavenly day. But many a day which begins with an unclouded sun is deformed by dark and lowering clouds, and even agitated with tremendous storms before it closes. So it may be in the spiritual life. Some commence their pilgrimage under the most favorable auspices, and seem to stand so firmly on the mount that they are ready to say, I shall never be moved. Yet when their Lord hides his face they are soon troubled, and may long walk in darkness, and enjoy no light or comfort and commonly this change is brought about by our own spiritual pride and carelessness. The opinion commonly entertained that the most enormous sinners are the subjects of the most pungent convictions of sin, and the most alarming terrors of hell, is not correct. In regard to such, the commencement of a work of grace is sometimes very gradual, and the impressions apparently so slight that they afford very little ground of sanguine expectations of the result. On the other hand, some persons of an unblemished moral character, and who, from the influence of a religious education, have always respected religion and venerated its ordinances, when brought under conviction, are more terribly alarmed and more overwhelmed with distress than others whose lives have been stained by gross crimes. The Reverend John Newton seventeen twenty five to eighteen oh seven, when awakened to some sense of his sinful and dangerous condition, which occurred during a violent and long continued storm at sea, though his judgment was convinced that he was the greatest of sinners, and he doubted whether it was possible for him to be saved, yet seems to have had no very deep feelings or agitating fears. He says quote, It was not till long after, perhaps several years, when I had gained some clear views of the infinite righteousness and grace of Christ Jesus my Lord, that I had a deep and strong apprehension of my state by nature and practice, and perhaps till then I could not have borne a sight. So wonderfully does the Lord proportion the discoveries of sin and grace, for He knows our frame, and that if He were to put forth the greatness of His power, A poor sinner would be instantly overwhelmed and crushed as a moth." And though from this time there was a sensible change, and his mind was turned towards religion, yet it is evident from the history of his life, as well as his experiences afterwards, this is John Newton, that grace existed during several years in the feeblest state of which we can well conceive. It appeared so much so to himself that he warns all persons from considering his experience as a model for them. Quote, as to myself, every part of my case has been extraordinary. I have hardly met a single instance resembling it. Few, very few, have been rescued from such a dreadful state. and Those few that have been thus favored have generally passed through the most severe convictions, and after the Lord has given them peace. Their future lives have been usually more zealous, bright, and exemplary than common, End quote. Now this is the opinion which I think is taken up rather from theory than an observation of facts. I think that those persons who have been most conversant with exercised souls will say that there is no general rule here, that very pungent convictions and deep distress are found as frequently in those who have been preserved from outbreaking transgressions as in those noted for their immoralities. There seems, indeed, more reason for severe convictions in the latter case. But convictions are not uniformly proportioned to the magnitude of crimes. And, in truth, we are incapable of comparing together the heinousness of the sins of different persons. The moral man, as we call him, may be the greater sinner of the two when weighed in the balances of the sanctuary. I heard a popular preacher once undertake to prove that moral men and formal professors must, in all cases, be far more wicked than the blaspheming infidel, and gross debauchee. The argument was plausible, but labored under one essential defect, and I was of opinion, and still am, that such a doctrine is highly dangerous, and calculated to encourage men to go to all length and wickedness. When I was a very young preacher, I expressed the opinion in a sermon preached in North Carolina that the mere moralists and formalists were more out of the way of conviction than the openly profane. When the sermon was ended, a fierce-looking man came up to me and said that I had delivered precisely his opinion on one point, and mentioned the above sentiment. I inquired when he was gone who he was, and found that he was the most notorious profligate in all the country and not long afterwards he was apprehended and imprisoned at the head of a company engaged in felonious acts. This taught me a lesson which I never forgot. John Newton perceived thus, quote, Now as, on the one hand, my convictions were very moderate, and far below what might have been expected from the dreadful review I had to make, so, on the other... My first beginnings in a religious course were as faint as well as can be imagined. I never knew that season alluded to, Jeremiah 2, verse 2, Revelations 2, verse 4, usually called the time of first love, quote. And then he relates facts which give sad evidence of a very low state of grace, and if it had never risen higher, we should certainly have been inclined to believe that he was not a subject of saving grace. But this leads me to remark a fact analogous to what is common in the natural world, that the infant which, when born, barely gives evidence of life, may not only grow to maturity, but in size and strength may far exceed those who commence life with more activity and vigor. And so in the spiritual life, when the incipient motions and affections are very feeble, the person may eventually become a mature and eminent Christian, as we have no doubt John Newton did. Another instance of a similar kind, if my memory serves me, was Richard Cecil, who had also been for many years a profane infidel, but who, in process of time, became one of the most eminent Christians as well as spiritual ministers of his day. Dr. Thomas Scott also was a Socinian, and yet a preacher in the established Church, but the progress of illumination and conviction in his mind was very gradual. His force of truth is an admirable little work, and furnishes a full illustration of the sentiment which I wish to inculcate, that grace in the commencement is often exceedingly faint and feeble, and yet may grow into a state of maturity and comparative perfection. In the experience of Jonathan Edwards, as recorded by himself, we find no account of any deep and distressing convictions of sin at the commencement of his religious course, though afterwards perhaps few men ever attained to such humbling views of the depth and turpitude of the depravity of the heart. But his experience differs from that of those mentioned above, in that his first views of divine things were clear and attended with unspeakable delight. Quote, The first instance that I remember of that sort of inward sweet delight in God and divine things that I have lived much in since, was on reading those words first 1 timothy 1:17 1, now unto the king eternal immortal invisible the only wise god be honor and glory forever and ever amen as i read these words there came into my soul and was as it were diffused through it a sense of the glory of the divine being a new sense quite different from anything i ever experienced before Never any words of Scripture seemed to me as these words did. I thought with myself how excellent a being that was, and how happy should I be if I might enjoy that God, and be wrapped up to Him in heaven, and be, as it were, swallowed up in Him forever. From about that time I began to have a new kind of apprehension and ideas of Christ, and the work of redemption, and the glorious way of salvation by Him. An inward sweet sense of these things at times came into my heart, and my soul was led away in pleasant views and contemplations of them. After this my sense of divine things gradually increased, and became more and more lively, and had more of that inward sweetness. The appearance of everything was altered. There seemed to be, as it were, a calm sweet cast or appearance of divine glory in almost everything. God's excellency, His wisdom. His purity and His love seem to appear in everything, quote. The difference between this and many other cases of incipient piety is very striking, and yet these views and exercises do not come up to the standard which some set in regard to Christian experience because they are so abstract and have such casual reference to Christ, through whom alone God has revealed to man as an object of saving faith. And if there be a fault in the writings of this great and good man on the subject of experimental religion, it is that they seem to represent renewed persons as at the first occupied with the contemplation of the attributes of God with delight, without ever thinking of a mediator. But few men ever attained, as we think, higher degrees of holiness, or made more accurate observations on the exercises of others. His treatise concerning religious affections is too abstract and tedious for common readers. But it is an excellent work, although I think his fourteen signs of truly gracious affections might have with great advantage been reduced to half the number on his own plan. The experimental exercises of religion are sure to take their complexion from the theory of doctrine entertained, or which is inculcated at the time. The variety which appears in the exercises of real converts does not depend alone on the different degrees of vigor in the principle of spiritual life, but on many other circumstances, some of which will now be noticed. The benefit of sound doctrinal instruction to the newborn soul has already been mentioned, but demands a more particular consideration. What degree of knowledge is absolutely necessary to the existence of piety cannot be accurately determined by man, but we know that genuine faith may consist with much ignorance and error. Suppose two persons, then, to have received the principle of spiritual life in equal vigor, but let the one be ignorant and the other well instructed. It is easy to see what a difference this will make in the exercises of the two converts, and also in the account which they are able to respectively give to others of the work of grace on their hearts. It is here taken for granted that nothing but divine truth can be the object of holy affections, or furnish the motives from which true Christians are bound to act, and that faith in all its actings has respect to revealed truth. But that which is unknown can be the object neither of faith nor love. That which is known obscurely, and viewed indistinctly, can never operate with the same effect as that which is clearly understood. Accordingly, our missionaries inform us that we ought not to expect the same consistency of maturity in the religion of real converts from heathenism as from religiously educated persons in our own country. It is a lamentable fact that in this land of churches, and of Bibles, there are many who know little more of the doctrines of Christianity than the pagans themselves. The proper inference from the facts stated is that they are egregiously in error, who think that the religious education of children is useless or even injurious. Their opinion is also condemned, who maintain that it matters little what men believe, provided their lives are upright. All good conduct must proceed from good principles. But good principles cannot exist without a knowledge of the truth. Truth is an order to holiness, and between truth and holiness there is an indissoluble connection.
1: This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats.